I invite you to stand as we come for the reading of God's Word. Uh, our summer text this morning uh, comes to us uh, from uh, the book of Second Chronicles. Uh, once more today, and we will be looking at verses 13 through 19 as we continue to, to see the kingship of Jehoshaphat. Again, Second Chronicles chapter 20, beginning at verse 13. Let us hear again the living word which has been given to God's people for their blessing. Again, Second Chronicles chapter 20, beginning at verse 13. Now all Judah, with their little ones, their wives and their children, stood before the Lord. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jahaziel, the son of Zechariah, the son of Benaiah, the son of Jael, the son of Mataniah, a Levite of the sons of Asaph, in the midst of the assembly. And he said, Listen, all you of Judah, and you inhabitants of Jerusalem, and you, King Jehoshaphat. Thus says the Lord to you, Do not be afraid nor dismayed because of this great multitude. For the battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow go down against them. They will surely come up by the ascent of Ziz, and you will find them at the end of the brook before the wilderness of Jeruel. You will not need to fight in this battle. Position yourselves, stand still, and see the salvation of the Lord who is with you. O Judah and Jerusalem, do not fear or be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them, for the Lord is with you. And Jehoshaphat bowed his head and with his face to the ground, and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem bowed down before the Lord, worshiping uh, the Lord then the Levites and the children of the Kohathites and the children of the Korahites stood up to praise the Lord God of Israel with voices loud and high. Amen. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, as we come uh, to hear these words to God, we pray through the power of Your Spirit uh, that You will open our hearts and our minds to receive Your truth and that we might put these words into practice as we live lives in accordance with Your truth. And in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Back in the fall, you know, we had a sermon series uh, about baptism. Now, that sermon series uh, focused upon what we do with our baptism today. How, uh, being 39 years old, does my baptism, which happened 38 years ago, continue to bless me? How does God use that act of the sacrament of baptism to continue to provide for His covenant children, uh, whether they be an infant or they be a hundred years old? How does that work? How does God's continued blessing upon that baptism affect our lives? And one of the things we, we talked about during that series was is that baptism is an, is an important a plan, important part of God's plan, I should say, in raising up children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Right? When we bring our children to the font to be baptized, you know, we believe something is actually happening. 
You know, it's not a bare right where we just kind of go through the motions of getting somebody's head wet. You know, that, that's not really the purpose of that. It's, it's not uh, in order to kind of have a cute little moment in the beginning of a worship service. You know, there's something, uh, you know, we kind of use this word differently today, but there's something magical that happens in baptism. You know, what we see happening in baptism is the kind of implantation of God's promise upon that child. And what that promise is signifying is that that child belongs to the Lord. And that child is covenanted with the Lord God. And we think back to the Old Testament kind of version of this sacrament, you know, the, the act of circumcision. And what was circumcision for the Israelite? It wasn't as if they gained God's promise and God's covenantal place when they were circumcised. The act of circumcision was a way to show not only the world that this child belonged to God, but it was also a way that the Israelites confessed to the Lord that this child belonged unto God. And one of the things we see uh, given unto the Israelites throughout the Old Testament is that they were commanded by the Lord God to bring that child into the the elements of Old Covenant worship. They were to be brought into the temple. They were to be brought into the synagogue on Saturdays. They were to be a part of the Passover celebration. And one of the things we've we've seen in the book of Exodus as we've gone through it on a Sunday evening has been this importance that is placed on children. Of course, we we know the kind of the the main event of that in the book of Exodus where uh, Moses is saved by the hand of God from the command of Pharaoh that all the children be killed. And we know how his mother uh, took him and placed him in uh, that reed uh, uh, kind of canoe and pushed him down the river. And we see how God providentially uh, guided Moses down the river until he was taken in by Pharaoh's daughter. And then, of course, we know that God allowed Moses' mother to continue to raise him even in the midst of Pharaoh's palace. Now, we we see that and we think, well, what's God doing there? What is His purpose in that? In saving Moses and allowing Moses then to be raised by his mother. Well, you think about what would have taken place if Moses had not been raised by his mother. Now, if he had been raised in the palace of Pharaoh, not knowing who he truly was, how could he have faced Pharaoh in the 80 years that would follow How would he be able to know whom the Lord God was who appeared to him at the burning bush? And we see here how God used this providential time to raise up this man uh, for the glory of God in order to bring his people out of bondage to slavery in Egypt. A New Testament example of this is we see with young Timothy. We hear at the beginning of uh, the second letter that Paul wrote to Timothy about how his mother and grandmother, Lois and Eunice, had raised him up in the fear of the Lord, raised him up in the knowledge of God. 
And one of the things that's kind of unspoken there, but we can infer rightly, is that his father was not involved in this raising. We're told that his father was a Greek. And what's, what's meant by that is the fact that his father not only was not a Christian, but he actively worshipped the gods of Greece. And so we have this kind of mixed situation where Timothy is being raised in a home with a father who does not believe in God, but a grandmother and a mother who are faithfully bringing him up in the knowledge of Christ. And that's why Paul will say to Timothy of the blessing of the Lord upon him. Now, how did Timothy again receive uh, this particular gift? Uh, What was it about him that allowed him to be raised in this environment? One of the things that Lois and Eunice would have done is they would have brought him to worship. Again, we we think that's kind of strange because that's so close to the death of Christ. But how else would Lois and Eunice have known to raise Timothy up in the knowledge of God? If they themselves had not heard not only the preaching of the gospel, but had already established this pattern of coming before the Lord, first on Saturday, and then in the New new Covenant when it was presented to them on the Lord's Day, on the first day of the week. we, We see this pattern both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And what we see at the beginning of this passage this morning, again, is of the importance of children being in the worship of the Lord. And they are to be present in the worship of the Lord, uh, not merely because they have to, or because they're supposed to, or because it's a good way of kind of teaching them the patterns of life, but we're reminded that they are to be present in the worship of God because the sign of the covenant has been placed on them. And so the worship of God is as much for the children as it is for us. You know, the worship of God is, is what we heard there in Psalm 8. Right? How, how did the, the Bible song say it? How does Psalm 8 say it? Right? Even the babblings of babes bring glory to the name of God. And why is that? Because they are covenant members of God's family. And God loves to hear the voices of His people in praise. Whether it be in you know, the literal words of the Scriptures or in kind of the babblings of infants. That's one of the reasons why in the Presbyterian world we invite and want our children, no matter how young, no matter how you know, uncouth or whatever, you know, that's why we want them in the worship of God. Because they have as much right to worship the Lord as we do. Because again, they are covenant members of God's family. You know, this is kind of an aside here, but this is one of the reasons why you know, we really shouldn't talk about you know, the children joining the church when they come to faith. Because what we believe is, is that children are already members of the church. By virtue of their baptism, they are brought into the family of God. That's one of the reasons why we used to use that word confirmation to describe uh, the day in which children came to faith in the Lord and confessed that faith publicly. Because think about what confirmation means. Confirmation is a confirming 
act. Right? It's confirming the promise that God made to them in baptism. That they were His people. And that He had called them out of darkness, uh, whether it was when they were an infant, or whether when they were a, a teenager, or even when they were an adult. You know, that, that act of coming to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, again, is a confirmation of God placing His name upon them in baptism. And again, when we think about that, this is why it's so important to, to notice what happens here in 2 Chronicles 20, verse 13. Who is present for the lamentation prayer of Jehoshaphat? Is it just the men? It's only the important men? Right? Is this a presbytery meeting where ministers and elders are gathered together to call upon the Lord? No, no, it's not just uh, the kind of ordained men who are there. Who else is present? You can look at verse 13. It says, Now all Judah, with their little ones, their wives and their children, stood before the Lord. So again, we're told here, it's not just kind of the children who are of age. It's not just the children who can sit still. Right? Who else is present here? We're told the little ones are present in the worship of the Lord. And again, we, we think, well, again, well, what's the New Testament have to say about this? Well, remember that little situation with the disciples and Jesus. Right? Jesus is sitting there and a bunch of children run up to Him. And what do the disciples try to do? They say, go away. Go get. Right? You know, Jesus is here talking to the adults. Get away. Right? You know, children are to be what? Seen, not heard. Right? That's kind of the philosophy of the disciples in that passage. But what does Jesus say to the disciples? Suffer not the little children to come unto me. And again, what, what is Jesus' point there? Again, that the words that He is speaking to the crowds are as much for the little children as they are for the adults. And why is that? Because again, Jesus is the covenant King. He is the one who knows His people. And those children belong to Him. And again, they have as much right to hear the words of the living and the true God as anyone else. Again, some people will say, well, children can't understand these things. And well, there's a sense in which that's true, of course. There's a sense in which even I don't understand some of the things that are written by the Apostle Paul. As Peter writes in 2 Peter. But what do we believe about the power of the Word of God? Remember what the prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 55. So shall my word be that goes forth in my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please. And it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. Again, do we believe that God's Word has power even to work in the hearts of infants? Do we believe that God's Word has power to work in the hearts no matter whether you're a hundred years old or uh, you are a newborn child? Again, do we believe that God's Word has that power even if it doesn't look like children are paying attention? That's one of those things, of course, you learn as a parent is that even when your kids don't look like they're paying attention, what do they do? Oh, they hear, right? They hear everything. And they lock it up in there. And, of course, they usually bring it up at the most inopportune time. Uh, this thing that they heard you say. Right? 
But again, this is why we gather together on the Lord's Day as a congregation of God's people. That's why we don't send the children away. Because they are as much a part of the life of the body as any of us. And we see this illustrated for us powerfully in 2 Chronicles 20, verses 13-19. through Because as the prophet here, the priest, more specifically Jehaziel, speaks to the power of the Spirit of the Lord, who is he talking to? It tells us there in verse 15, And he said, Listen, all you of Judah, and you inhabitants of Jerusalem, and you, King Jehoshaphat. See, that this word that God has to speak is not just for King Jehoshaphat, but for all who are present. And again, what a better time for the young ones of God to learn about the power of God, to learn about their need to not only obey the Lord, but to rest and trust in the power of God. Then in the midst, when they see these armies of the Ammonites surrounding their parents, could you think about what must be going through the minds and the hearts of these little ones? You know, these little ones are smart enough to know what's going to happen if battle comes. They know what's going to happen to their dad if the Ammonites attack Jerusalem. They know their dad's going to have to go out and fight against these men. Of course, they are old enough and, and wise enough to understand what happens in battle, what happens in war. You know, there's a real reality that dad might not be coming home that night. And what do they need to hear from the Lord God? The God who is their God. Again, notice what he says in this word that comes from the Spirit of the Lord. Thus the Lord says to you, Do not be afraid nor dismayed because of this great multitude, for the battle is not yours, but God's. And think about how comforting that is to a child. Knowing That there is nothing to be afraid of. There's nothing to be dismayed about. For the Lord God is in command of this battle. You remember what else Jesus tells the disciples about uh, His work. How are we to receive the call of the Gospel? We're to receive it as little children. You think about sometimes what Jesus means by that. We think about what it means to love the Lord Jesus Christ as a little child, right? That, that, that is testifying that we are to receive Jesus with that wholehearted trust. Part of the problem of being adult is that you know, we can become far too cynical about things. Right? Adults have a, a tendency to always try to look for the, the, the cracks in things. You know, to, to, to find reasons for why we can't and why we shouldn't and why we don't. But again, what do we see children? Right? Children leap onto things. Right? Now sometimes that's a little scary right? when children just kind of leap into things uh, before really thinking through what it is they're doing. You know, how many of us as young children jumped off roofs and fell out of trees and things because we didn't think through what we were about to do. Well, that's not because necessarily we were just dumb, right? But we were trusting of our abilities to engage in these things. Well, think about again the need for the children, the need for the adults, the need for all of Israel, all of Judah and Jerusalem to be reminded of this great and wonderful truth. 
That the battle is not yours, but what? But the battle belongs to the Lord. And we think about that in our own walks with Jesus Christ. You know, in, in, in Sabbath school this morning, they talked about the, you know, Jesus walking on the water. Right? And it's kind of a perfect illustration for this. And again, I, I thank the ARP quarterly for continually, providentially ordering things that, so I can bring up the Sabbath school lessons in morning worship. But we think about the walking on water. And of course, we know that story, you know, up, down, sideways, and backwards. Again, think for a moment about how that applies to this passage. Right? What does Peter do when he gets out of the boat? Right? He walks on the water. Right? And as long as he's walking on the water and he's looking at Jesus, what is he doing? Right? He's walking on the water. But the second he looks down at the water, what does he do? He starts to sink. He starts to sink. He starts to go down and he starts to get ready to drown. Until the Lord Jesus, of course, reaches down, picks him up out of the water. And saves him from certain death in the depths of the sea. Well, again, we, we think about that and we think about what is being said here. You know, what must the fathers and brothers of Judah and Jerusalem do? They must trust that the Lord God has everything under control. And as long as they believe that He has everything under control, what is the promise? The promise is that they will be saved from uh, these Amorites and those others who are coming to destroy them. And again, what do we see over and over again out of Israel and of Judah? The same thing we see out of us. Where we're trusting in God for as long as we think we've got everything under control. But the second we lose control, we lose faith in God. We lose faith in God's power. And why is that? Because we have never really trusted in God to begin with. Right? As long as everything's going smoothly, we're, we're all about you know, trusting in the Lord. But the second things start to dwindle, the second things start to go down, the second we start falling into the water, we start just grabbing for anything we can. And what do the Scriptures teach us that we're supposed to grab at? Right? The Scriptures teach us that we are supposed to grab at the Lord Jesus Christ. And why are we supposed to grab the Lord Jesus Christ? Because He alone has the power to save us from drowning. And why does He alone have the power to save us from drowning? Because He is the God over all things. Right? Do not be dismayed. Do not be afraid. For the battle is the Lord's. Again, as, as we think about this some more, you notice what uh, we see in verse 18 about how Jehoshaphat uh, uh, exemplifies you know, our reaction to this call, this, this reminder of from Jehazel. In verse 18 it says, And Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground, and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem bowed before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. Now again, there, there's an important uh, message being sent here. Not only for the Old Testament, but for the New Testament as well. Who has to begin this process? Well, you think about, again, that uh, situation that we talked about with Timothy. The one who should have been leading the household, the one who should have been raising young Timothy up in the fear and admonition of the Lord, should have been his father. 
His Father is the one who is tasked by the Word of God to raise the child up. Of course, we, we, we hear that uh, expressed uh, directly in Ephesians chapter 6. In Ephesians chapter 6, it tells us, And you, fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. Now, why are fathers especially given this role and given this responsibility? Well, again, it's because, again, this is how God has ordered the family. This is how God has ordained that things will be. Now, of course, as we see with Timothy, that's not always the case. And sometimes uh, the mothers and the grandmothers have to be the one to kind of pick up the slack. But again, we don't make uh, kind of directives out of, uh, uh, out of abnormal situations, right? We, we need to organize our lives according to the ordinary means that God has established in His Word for the world to be organized. And again, the ordinary way that God has intended for the next generation to continue in the faith once for all delivered to the saints is through fathers to lead their homes. For fathers to be the spiritual leaders in their homes. For fathers to be the example of godly spirituality. Fathers should be the one leading their families in prayer. Fathers should be the ones making sure that their children are raised up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Again, we see this exemplified for us in Jehoshaphat here, who is the king of Judah and who begins this process of again showing all Israel, all Judah, all Jerusalem how to respond to the preaching and teaching of Jehazel. Again, what does he do in verse 18? In verse 18, we see Jehoshaphat bowing his head and his face to the ground. And now, what is this action supposed to be again showing us? What does it mean to bow your head and to bring your face to the ground? Again, if you think about that, right, what are you doing? You are submitting yourself to the Lord, right? You are putting yourself at His command. And you are humbling yourself before the Lord our God. Now, how does the Scripture usually uh, illustrate this for us? Well, when somebody is humbling themselves, when they're bowing his head with his face to the ground, uh, this is an act of repentance, Right? And, and if fathers really want to lead their homes, this is one of the most important ways they can, is through showing repentance to the rest of the family, illustrating what it means to confess our sins before the Lord. Because again, our children need to know that we're sinners. Right? Our children need to know that we depend not upon the strength of our hearts, but upon the strength of the Lord God. Our children need to see that they likewise need to confess their sins before the Lord. That they likewise need to humble themselves before God. That they need, again, to see a father who trusts in body and in soul in all what the Lord God has commanded. And again, this is what Jehoshaphat is doing as he begins, and as we see what happens after he bows his head with his face to the ground. Right? All Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem bow before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. Again, they follow the godly example of Jehoshaphat. And again, this is a testimony once more of how important it is, uh, again, for, for, for not only the children to be in worship, 
but most especially uh, for fathers to be in worship. Right? To show uh, to their children that worshiping the Lord is important. Right? That worshiping the Lord is the greatest of all things. That there is nothing in this world that compares with being in the presence of God and with being with God's holy covenant people. That this truly is uh, the greatest of all days and the greatest of all moments. For again, what are we going to do in the heavenly places? Right? In the heavenly places, we are going to be worshiping the Lord God forever and ever. And if we don't want to worship God here, then are we going to want to worship God forever in heaven? Right? That's what we believe about the Lord's Day, that this is a moment in time, a, a moment every week that the Lord God has given to His people in order that we might not only be refreshed for the battle, that we might show the world around us that there is nothing more important to the Christian than worshiping our Heavenly Father, of praising God's holy name, of giving thanks for the salvation that we have received through Jesus Christ. Again, this day where we remember the resurrection of Christ from the dead on the first day of the week, it is the day that God has given to us for this purpose that we might raise our children up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Again, think about what our children face day by day in the world. If if we are providentially blessed, how many hours a week do our children get with the Lord? An hour? Two hours? Three hours? How much are they being catechized by television? How much are they being taught about what's right and what's good by YouTube and by various things of that nature? What are we doing to kind of equalize the time? To make sure that our children are being taught the Word of God. And that can't be accomplished just on Sunday morning. This has to be something that we are engaged in every day. And again, this is why the example of Jehoshaphat is so important. Again, fathers have to be witnessing this. Mothers as well have to be witnessing this. That the Word of God is important. That God is truly number one in our lives. Again, what we see in the midst of all of these things that are going on is we see again the the Kohathites and the Korahites stand up to praise the Lord of God of Israel with voices loud and high. Again, this this testimony that, that everything has been building up to this moment of exalted praise unto God. And why is this exalted praise going up? Because what God has told them, do not be afraid, nor dismayed, because of this great multitude. For the battle is not yours, but God's. Again, brothers and sisters in Christ, as we we, we face uh, the various attacks of the evil one from day to day, again, what are we doing in the using of the means of God's weapons against the attacks of the evil one? Again, are we using the Word of God? Are we using prayer? Do we trust in these things to be sufficient? Not only that our children might know that they belong to the Lord, but that we might know that we belong to the Lord. Again, this isn't some kind of fail-safe plan. There's no immediate guarantee given here that every step is followed. 
Because ultimately, again, you know, our children are uh, due to the power of the Holy Spirit to be regenerated. And we don't believe that baptism is, a, is a, again, a formula that guarantees all these things. But what we do believe is that God has made a promise in that act. And that God has made a promise to us. And God has made a promise to the congregation of the Lord. That the battle belongs to Him. And that if we use the means by which He has given to us to fight that battle, then we'll see the Lord's blessing accomplished in this work. And let's, as we close today, let's think of the words of the psalmist in Psalm 95. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. For He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. Today, if you will hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, as in the day of trial in the wilderness. When your fathers tested me, they tried me, though they saw my work. For forty years I was grieved with that generation and said, It is a people who go astray in their hearts, and they do not know my ways. Well, again, think about what the psalmist is saying there. Again, these are the people of God's pasture. And what was the problem of the sheep in the wilderness? They were not eating the food that God had given to them. You know, they were complaining about the food. And they were complaining about God's provision. They were complaining about all of these things. When all they had to do was rest in what God had provided. For truly the manna was sufficient for their life. And the cloud and the pillar of fire was all they needed uh, to fight against the enemies that were before them. So again, as we close today, the question we have to ask is, are we going to be like Joshua and Caleb? Are we going to go into that land and and see the giants and think nothing of them because our God is the God over all things? Or are we going to be like the ten other spies and look at the giants in the land and go away afraid? Going away afraid because we don't trust in what God has promised to us. Not only in the fact that He has sent His Son to die for our sins, that we might rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, that we might again trust in the means by which He has given to us to raise our children up in the fear and admonition of the Lord, through worship on the Lord's day, and through daily prayer, and through daily opportunities to be in His Word. That we might again uh, be lifted up and be built on this foundation, this rock which will never waver, and this rock which will see us through even the most difficult of days. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we give thanks again.